Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Excellent. Well, I'm excited to be here with you guys, and thank you to uh, Dr. Aiken, the staff, uh, and you guys for letting me be here with y'all. It is an honor and a privilege uh, not only to be here, but also to just uh, open God's Word and be able to share that with you guys. Um, I'd love to do just a few things before I show you this video. Uh, I'd love to pray for us, and then uh, we'll go into this small little video that'll bring us into, into our text today. Uh, Jesus, we're grateful uh, because you have been incredibly good to us. So God, before we make any requests, uh, before we ask you for anything, would you allow us to just sit in your presence and say that you are good, that you are gracious and merciful and loving, uh, and you are all these things deeply toward us. Um, So God, thank you uh, for being so generous to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that uh, you would make me really good at getting out of the way uh, so that people would see our Savior, Jesus. Uh, God, may uh, your words be what come through my mouth. May it be your presence and not my face that people see, but may it be uh, the goodness that you desire uh, to permeate through your text and this time together. Uh, So again, God, I pray the words of Ephesians 6, that you would help my words to be clear Uh, that you would uh, allow the message to press and pierce through our hearts. Uh, And God, I ask that you would do the work that we desire to happen here, uh, not only in the students and in the staff and in the folks that are here, but that it may also do its work in my own heart. Uh, So Jesus, I lift you up, uh, and may you be seen today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can play that video. Did you have fun today? No, you know. I had fun. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. So me and Jake, so this is really weird. Me and Jacob have this thing. So when when he gets hurt, I feel like a little pain in my brain. And when I'm crying when I get hurt, he feels that too. Really? Yeah, it's really strange. Well, maybe you guys are so connected that you feel each other's pain, no? Mm-hmm. That's actually a good thing. Why? Well, because when he's hurt, you're able to understand why he's hurt. And when you're hurt, he's able to understand what it feels like to be hurt. So, that's actually a pretty good thing. So that was my nine-year-old son, Josiah, uh, who I love very much. And he and I were talking about the pain in his brain that he and his cousin Jacob shared. Uh, And it was this very lighthearted conversation that he and I were having as we walked the streets of our neighborhood, Washington Heights, New York City. But it was in that conversation that it forced me to ask a few questions about myself, about the church, uh, and about the times that we're living in. Forced me to ask, do we feel each other's pain as if it were our own? 
Does our physical and emotional proximity to our vecinos, our neighbors, as we call them back home, uh, does that close proximity amount to any meaningful solidarity in a time of crisis or even in a time of rejoicing? In other words, can you feel what your neighbors feel, be it a the darkness of their hardships or the highs of their victories. And what I realized coming off of that conversation is that it's often in those very simple, honest, and imaginative conversations with my son that God uses them to show me what he desires the church to be, and what he desires us to be in our neighborhoods. But there's a challenge to that uh, because we're not children anymore. And something seems to have happened between uh, childhood and adulthood where relationships become a little more complex and where we've grown to be a little more self-centered and where our desires to see someone else flourish is radically waning. One of the things that we say back home at our church is that we value compelling hospitality. It's not the kind of hospitality that merely opens its doors to people. It's the kind of hospitality that offers to their neighbor, whoever they might be, the very thing that refreshes us. We offer to our neighbors the very things that give us life, not the things that we're done using. That's the kind of hospitality that is most compelling. It's the kind of hospitality that pursues to make family out of strangers. That's actually one of our catchphrases back home. Are you making families out of strangers? And the reason why that is such a deep embedded value to us is because we believe that we were once strangers. It's because we believe that we were also made family, although we were once enemies and strangers and far from God. Now, since we planted, as Dr. Aiken said six years ago, we've realized that calling ourselves family is easy. Feeling like family is quite a different story. We've realized that it's much harder to feel like family, though we may call ourselves family. Because what we've come to find out is that growing in our relationship with Jesus means strengthening our identity as family. Being family means making room for one another, having that margin for our stories, all of what our stories are made up of, our hardships, our triumphs, Our dreams, our fears, our longings, our pleasures, our displeasures, our history, all of that is a part of our story, and we value making room for that. Being family means making room for meaningful moments, not fleeting moments. Moments that stir up a deep sense of joy, but also a deep sense of togetherness. It's when you feel safe around each other because you're certain that you never have to defend or explain your dignity, your value, or your beauty to one another. It's the kind of safety that you feel because you're certain that even critique and discipline will be used for your good to the glory of God. You know, over the last Two years, I would say, at least for our church, uh, you know, we live in a context where everyone questions the church. Everyone is always skeptical about the church, right? What does she want? Uh, How does she relate to the arts? How does she relate to politics? 
How does she relate to society? Does she just want my money? Does she love? Uh, does she want to just pursue my spirit but not care for my body? Does she just want to get me into heaven but doesn't care that I'm suffering on earth? We live in a kind of socially charged time. And in New York, it's no different. We've had to wrestle with a lot of these questions as leaders and as Christians, but also as those that are neighbors and residents of our community hoping to have an impact. We've had to wrestle through these things. Who is the church? What will she be and what will she commit to? What are her values? And what I've realized is that the story in Luke chapter 11, or excuse me, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32 have given us so many things to take from that give us the identity of the church and the identity of the Father. And I'd love to read that for us if I can. I'm sure some of you guys, if not all of you guys, are very familiar with this story. It's the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. I'm reading from the CSB. So here it says, he, Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees and also the sinners that were there, the younger Uh, The man had two sons. The younger of the men said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that is coming to me. So he, the father, distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered all that he had in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He, the younger son, longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, I'll go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up, he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robes, put it on him. Put the ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I think a few things that this text tells us about the nature of God and as a result, the nature of the church. The first thing that we see, the first thing that we must learn from this text is we must learn to see the church as a safe place for the hurting. We must learn to see the church as a safe place for the hurting. Now, let's think about this for a moment. I want to look at these these three characters in this story and find a source of encouragement for us. And challenge, perhaps. The younger son in this story finds himself in a really unique place. He finds himself in a place where his poor decision and his shame is now dictating the way that he sees himself. In other words, his shame and the circumstances around him are dictating his identity. The story describes him at the lowest point of his life this way in verse 15. 
and 16. He went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. It gets a little worse for this man. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, I'll go to my father, I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. Now physically we've realized that this brother has nothing to eat, but emotionally and spiritually you're now beginning to see that he has nothing to believe. That he's finding himself in this situation and in this circumstance and he feels broken. The circumstances of his life be it his decisions or the devastating uh, uh, situation of the famine, the circumstances in his life have broken his identity. The shame, the guilt, and the brokenness of his past have convinced him that he could no longer be a son. So he settles to simply be a worker. The space that he was in closed off any possibility of him being restored as a son. But I love what the father in this story does. The father, instead of conceding to that kind of space where shame dictates the identity of his son, the father, does a, he goes ahead and he creates an entirely new space for his son to exist in. See, he doesn't simply concede to a space dictated by shame and discouragement, but instead he creates a new space. Notice, notice what actually plays out. I could almost imagine this young son kind of coming to his senses and saying, man, I done screwed up. I need to go back home and ask my father for forgiveness. And on his long journey home, because he was a distance away, he probably rehearsed his apology. But look at what actually <clears throat> plays out in the story. So he, the younger son, got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father said, saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck, kissed him. And then the son said, or excuse me, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You see, the father creates a space where his son's past and his poor decisions wouldn't suffocate his identity. Now, this is a word for me, I know. Because I think oftentimes I have to live with the circumstances and the consequences of some of my poor decisions and I feel suffocated and oftentimes hopeless have you ever felt suffocated by your circumstance have you either felt suffocated by your circumstance or the consequences of perhaps your own decisions or perhaps even the consequences of the decisions of those around you well if so I hope that you can find refreshment in this text because the father creates this space where his past would not suffocate his identity. The father creates a space where his son wouldn't drown in his past. Look at how the father continues to respond to this young son. But instead, the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, then bring the fatted calf or Back home, it would be the pelnir, the roast 
All right, that's just for me. I'll take it. Here we go. Then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then they began to celebrate. Now, I've got to pause here for a moment because I think this party is far more important than we often recognize it to be. I grew up in a Dominican home. Both my parents are Dominican immigrants. I wrestled in the tension of being a Hispanic American and being in a home and growing up in a context that was very festive or lively, aka loud, where every possible achievement was celebrated, whether you learned how to walk, whether you learned how to tie your shoes, your parents would celebrate it with great festivities and people would get dressed up and food would be involved and mad family, mad as in a lot of family would be involved. This party and its significance means so much to me. I can deeply appreciate the celebration of this father toward his son. This banquet would be a new space that the father creates for the young son. It would be a new space where now compassion and forgiveness and joy would be what defines this son. This party with his dad's presence as a symbol of his dad's forgiveness is the son's true place of safety, refuge, and identity. But then you've got this older brother. And he seems to be repulsed by the whole thing, probably for two reasons. One, he's finally realizing that his dad's blessing isn't built around some kind of merit system. He's upset that he isn't able to earn what he truly wants, a party with him and his friends. But secondly, he's probably devastated at the thought that his dad wants him to be in that space that he's created for his younger son. He's expected to be in the space that the father creates for this younger son, and that infuriates him. He couldn't understand the thought of a space where his brother's return would be celebrated, where his rebellion would be forgiven, and where his debt would be canceled. I mean, he had no categories for that. So to expect him to be in that space, celebrating his rebellious son in comparison to himself who was very obedient, is something he could not fathom and only made him outraged. So it's no surprise that the story says that he, the older brother, became angry and did not want to go in to that space. But do you see what happens next in the story? The father creates the same space for the older brother as he did for the younger brother. I love this. It says, then he, the older brother, became angry and did not want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. I love that. The same space that the father created for the younger son, he went ahead and created for the older brother. That this older brother, as we say back in New York City, was in his feelings. And he couldn't fathom the idea of celebrating the return of a rebellious son. He couldn't fathom the idea of forgiving 
a rebellious son. He couldn't fathom a space that would celebrate a, a rebellious son's return and the canceling of his debt. So to go into that space is beyond him and him in his own feelings, he now sees his dad doing the same thing that he did for the younger son, creating a space of relationship. I'll come out, son, though you don't want to come in. Now, over my years of ministry, and I've, I know that I have still so much more to learn. You know, we planted uh, officially uh, five years ago. We started gathering our team six years ago. Uh, and over the years of ministry, I've had, to, I've had to allow this small detail to sink in. I've had to ask God in the years of ministry to help me realize that he comes out. Because I think the temptation is to grow angry with God because he hasn't given you what you've asked for. And oftentimes, because we believe that we've earned it through our religious obedience, we turn our back toward God. Or perhaps the temptation is to allow our shame and our discouragement to write off the idea that God can restore us as a daughter or as a son again so we don't even come close to God. But praise God that he comes out and that he pursues us. You see, the father doesn't wait for the sons to come to him, but rather he himself takes the initiative to go to both of them. We read earlier with the younger son that the father ran toward him, threw his arms around him, adorned him from head to toe, and then celebrated him like the son that he was before the son could utter one word of repentance. Now, of course, he had his moment of revelation, and as the text said, he came to his senses. So he, he, we realized that God was already at work doing some, something in homeboy's heart. He was already working in his heart, which is why the text said he came to his senses. But as he's walking toward his pops, and his pops sees him from a distance, before he can utter one word of repentance toward his pops, the pops was already embracing him. The pops already threw his arms around his, neck, around his neck and kissed him and then celebrated him and dressed him from head to toe. And now we read that how this, despite the bitterness and the hardness of this older brother and his resistance to come into a space like that, the father shows gentle love toward this older son and he comes out. You see, the father pursues both of these sons. You see, the message, family, of the church is good because it says that God's kiss and his embrace, which are signs of love and invitation, is not the response to our repentance, but rather it is the action that inspires our repentance. And I wonder how much damage we can cause if we confuse those two things. You know, back home, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm part of a, you know, mostly Hispanic uh, and black church. So, you know, there's, there's, there's call and response here. I know I'm, I might be speaking to myself here, but I will repeat what I, what I said here. The message of the church is good because it says that God's kiss and embrace, signs of love and invitation, is not the response of our repentance, but rather the action that inspires it. 
See, the question for us might be this. How have we been an extension of that powerful and redemptive love that we see the Father demonstrating to his sons here? Because offering forgiveness, in some cases, seems absolutely ridiculous. Making past failings and deficiencies count for nothing, rendering those who have failed equal with those who have achieved, giving the undeserving equal shares with those who have merited their solid places in society, all of that usually provokes outrage. To claim that God is a God of jubilee, amnesty, and forgiveness, all of this is outrageous enough to get one crucified. And it did. You see, we're part of a society oftentimes, and we've had to wrestle with this back home, that does not look positively at total amnesty, grace, or cancellation of debt. This is why following the way of Jesus with the backdrop of our world is revolutionary. But the question is, how is the Father able to offer this kind of grace and generosity and amnesty? It seems whimsical and insubstantial. Well, I think verse 12 might offer us some clarity. Verse 12, I'll read 11 just for context. It says, he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that is coming to me. So he, the father, distributed the assets to them. Now, something interesting, I know I'm speaking to seminarians here, but something interesting happens in the Greek here. That word estate and asset are not the same, though you thought they might be. See, the word asset here is not the typical word used to describe just simply stuff that you own. Instead, the word that we find here for asset is bios, which means life. This younger brother asked for something that was going to tear his father's life apart. He divided not only his property, but his life up for this son. In short, it seems like this request ripped the family apart. And I think the encouragement that we find here is that in the same way that this father rips himself apart, Christ does the same for us. That we, through what is his, could experience life in the fullest. You see, Christ comes to us and he, give his, he gives his bios for us that we would enjoy. And see, the Father allows himself to be torn apart so that we would enjoy the blessing and the inheritance of what is his. I've always thought of how Jesus has given us what is exclusively his relationship with the Father. But what else does this text show us about the nature of the Father, and as a result, the nature of the church. Not only, should we a, not only should the church be understood as a safe place for the hurting, but perhaps it should also, the church should also be seen as a risky place for power. Now think about this for a moment. Let's consider this older brother. This older brother has, up until this point, created him for himself a world where he had the power, where he had the control to manipulate, manipulate his father's hand and his blessing, or at least he thought. He says this to his father outside of the party. Look, I've been slaving for many years for you, 
and I have never disobeyed your orders yet. You never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. You see, in this older brother's mind, his years of obedience and close proximity to his pops was not out of sheer affection for his dad, but rather it was as a way to exercise power over his dad when the time was right. The older brother wasn't obedient because he valued intimacy. He was obedient because he valued power and influence. The question for us become, becomes is why do we do what God asks us to do? How many of us perhaps lead and create spaces where we run the risk of being close to God, not for the intimacy that we crave with him, but rather for the opportunity to have power over him? You know, the irony of this situation between this older son and his father is that the older brother complains about his years of slaving for his dad only as a charge to treat his dad as a slave. Did you catch that? He complains about his slaving over the years for his dad only as a charge to make his dad a slave. You see, he wants to hold his father hostage through his obedience. Yet the father, again, dismantles the way of his son's thinking. And I love the way that he does it because he does it with gentleness and kindness, but still firmness and truth. He looks at his son and he says, son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. Almost as if to say, son, your power and your performance mean nothing in this conversation. You can never earn for yourself what I have freely given you. But this older son is a very unwilling big brother. And what do I mean? He's unwilling to reimagine the way that he understands his power and performance. He's unwilling to see the merciful, gracious, welcoming, and joyful posture of his dad over his younger son. It's almost reminiscent of Jonah who confused God's compassion for weakness. But it almost feels like this brother's anger is understandable. Now, why would you say that, Rich? Well, think about this for a moment. The story says in the very beginning that the father divided all of his assets to his son. Old Testament law, some scholars say that the firstborn receives at least two thirds of the inheritance while the younger son receives one third of the inheritance the text says that he divided all of his estates all of his assets between both sons the younger son took his portion and then he went on to waste it then he returns and his father adorns him from head to toe putting a ring on his finger a robe on his back and threw a party for him perhaps we've never asked ourselves the question I know I didn't did we ever ask ourselves the question, where did the father get these things? Where could he have gotten? I thought he already divvied it all up. Where did the father get all of these robes and these rings and these sandals? And where did he, where did he get that? Oh, <laughs> he got it from the older brother's portion. You see, the way the older brother thought about power and performance convinced him that he was entitled to his portion of the inheritance, as was the younger brother. So he thinks to himself, 
My brother squandered his portion and now he has to suffer the consequences. And if you, dad, want to be generous and merciful and forgiving, though I disagree with you, you could do whatever you want, but please don't do it at my expense. See, this was a very unwilling big brother. He was not willing to share his inheritance with his brother. He was not willing to suffer the loss of what he thought his power and performance had earned him. His whole, wor- his whole world was being turned upside down, and his only reaction is outrage. But this isn't the only time God challenges power in scriptures, right? Think of the, consider the young rich ruler who left sad when Jesus challenged him. Consider John the Baptist who... In the, in the context of uh, countryside Judeans and then uh, city slickers from Jerusalem, he said this, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will come and baptize you with the Spirit. Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a massive kingdom statement that unsettles power, especially to the, those from Jerusalem that were in the crowd. Justo Gonzalez, he's a, a minister from Decatur, Georgia, Cuban-American. I've really appreciated his work. He, he says this about the narrative of Scripture. He says, much of what has been preserved by Israel, meaning in their history, is the perspective of the powerless over against the viewpoint of the powerful. Included also are the repentant powerful who have learned through their own bitter experience that God is the defender of the poor and oppressed and not the supporter of the unjust, whether they be kings or nation. And family, the question that I am pressed to ask myself which I pose to us here is, how has our power become self-serving? How have our privileges made us blind to God's love and mercy and compassion? You see this, while this younger brother, excuse me, this older brother failed to reimagine power and refused to share his inheritance, Jesus is the older brother who uses his power and what is truly his to celebrate his younger sisters and brothers. It was Jesus, the older brother, who didn't hold on to his heavenly robes, but instead willingly stripped himself naked and was shamed so that we could be clothed in his righteousness and be celebrated by his grace. What this older brother failed to realize is what Ephesians reminds us in chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that which, with which he loved us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus So that in the coming ages, he might describe what? And he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And that is not from yourself. It is a gift from God. So that no one may boast. You see, unlike the father in this story, the father in heaven does not have to take from anyone else's inheritance because the riches of his mercy are endless. The riches of his kindness are endless. The riches of his forgiveness are endless. The riches of his love are endless. God doesn't run out of mercy. He doesn't run out of forgiveness. He doesn't run out of grace. His prerogative is to deeply love us and care for us and lean on the sacrifice of his son so that all that would be left for us is forgiveness and grace. 
I'll leave you with this final thought. Not only is the church a safe place for the hurting, not only is it a risky place for power, but it must be a place marked by joy. Luke 15 is dripping with joy. I mean, it's all over. Think about the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the celebration of both the shepherd and the woman, and now the celebration of the father. One of the things that I've deeply appreciated um, about some of, uh, you know, we live in a contest as Hispanics where Catholicism is a big thing, and we've had to learn how to uh, create an apologetic uh, for our context when it comes to engaging uh, uh, the Catholic community. And one of the things that I've learned just in conversation is about, uh, you know, as we know, the veneration of saints for them. Uh, and while I disagree with it, there's something about their process that struck me. That while they have several elements and categories by which they decide how to venerate a, a saint, one of, the, one of the categories that they use to identify a saint is the question, how much joy did they demonstrate in their life? I deeply appreciate that. Because if we are to be the people that have gone through their journey and seen the sacrifices of God and seen the grace of God and seen the mercy of God and have deeply experienced the love of God, ought we not to be the ones filled with unshakable joy? I think so. I'll leave you with this final quote from Professor Doris Donnelly from St. John University. She says this. Maybe we owe it to ourselves to survey our culpability as squelchers of joy in others and of being part of systems and institutions that do not tolerate, let alone encourage joy. Maybe we need to remedy the balance of somberness by gladdening others with support, kind words, encouragement, laughter, hope, time, and the simple gift of self. It wouldn't hurt. In fact, it could heal. And it would point to the kingdom first heralded by the angels who proclaim the good tidings of great joy. May we be those that are filled with the joy of salvation. Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, thank you. You have been good to us and kind to us. We celebrate you, Jesus, because you are our sweet Savior. You've given us, you've given us your life. You have taken your death in exchange for our, uh, for our life. Thank you, God, that you have been merciful. Holy Spirit, may you do what this sermon, this time, was not able to accomplish. May you take uh, the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth. May you make them pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www www.sebts.edu We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. 
Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.